Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode 69 of Game Store Profits, brought to you by Inroads Ministries. My name is Luke Navarro. And my name is Mike Perna. How you doing today, man? I, I'm good. I'm a little bummed because we didn't quite make my, my goal, my sad little goal that I jumped on Facebook to say. However, I'm still super excited about the fact that in three months of running this, uh, since Inroads went live, I mean, Game Store okay. Profits has been going for a couple years. Right, right, right. But in the three months that Inroads have been live, we've had 2,000 unique page visits. Nice. Well, currently it's at 1954, but who's counting? Right. Let me log in real quick. Um, <laughs> actually, folks, it doesn't count us, okay? Uh, it, it knows when it's us, and it doesn't count. It's the uniques that matter, and uh, I, it blows my mind that there could possibly be 2,000 people in the world who are interested in what Inroads is. Yeah, the short the short version is that there's a whole lot of you out there listening to us, and that's awesome. And you know what? Hey, uh, I'm glad for it. I'm confused, <laughs> but glad for it. Uh, so that's awesome. Three months into inroads, you guys, man. All I got to do is just sit there and watch it. Mike does all the work. Throwing <laughs> content up there. I'm not gonna lie. I'm putting a, a bunch game. of work in this. You so, guys yeah. are awesome. I just sit there and be like, ah, I'm awesome, and then play my banjo that's uh that's about my life uh so when so, you're not being awesome and playing the banjo what have you been up to lately uh, i've been playing board games what do you what do you think man well i was looking more specifics uh so i've gotten to play this in, since the last time we recorded two games that i have been looking forward to playing i think for almost two years wow a, a year at least uh and the first of those is a game called space cadets Oh, you played Space Cadets. Uh, Space Cadets is... Well, you are the crew of the Starship Not Enterprise. Uh, You you basically uh, are on a ship that is just exactly like you would expect it uh, to be. It's designed by the Engelsteins, uh, published by Stronghold. uh, And the way this works, it's a cooperative game. You're each a member of the bridge crew. So one of you's Worf, one of you's Data, you know, uh, somebody's in engineering, somebody's on the con, somebody's got the helm, somebody's, you know, routing power from the nacelles to the shields, and that's what you're doing. Here's the, the little wrinkle about the game, is each of these different stations is comprised of a mini-game. So you have games that are kind of like a Tetris tile matchy kind of a thing, a uh, a memory game like you know the little memory game we played when we were three years old to make sure a we weren't flicking stupid. Flicking game, a flicking game which I got, which has got to be the most stressful game in the game. Um, uh, one where you reach into a bag blindly and try to pick out a certain geometric shape, um, and so on and so forth. And you play these games pretty much uh, all during a 30-second, uh, you know, sand timer window. So it's crazy chaos, and you can't know whether your other team members are successful or not at what they're doing. So the guy steering the ship cannot really know where the guy who's controlling the shields is powering up the shields. The guy doing the uh, sensor locks can't, if they don't open up the new sector before the guy steering the ship is flying at it at a high rate of space speed, you're in trouble. And so this game, uh, it is the ultimate case of, I screwed up and we're all screwed now. Uh, so I, I, does that describe the game? Do you kind of get an idea of, I know what you know what it is, but does... That kind of give you a vibe for what it's about. Uh, it, you're, you're games wrapped in games with a whole lot yes. of chaos around it. You're uh, you're you're playing a ship. You're moving through space. You're trying to beat up bad guys and achieve objectives. The game we played it was to tractor beam in some asteroids or some something meteors or something, and uh, then get out. And uh, we played for a lot of the game with five players. It's a it can play. Anywhere, I think, from four to six. Um, But there are six stations, basically. So with six people, you've got everybody doing one thing. 
Uh, with five people, we had a couple of us doing two things. I was doing the jump drive and the weapons. Um, and so, here's the thing about this game. It's really fun to play, but it's not a great game. <laughs> if that makes a whole, it makes sense. And I, actually, I think I know guys, where you're going, but one it, of the guys in the group farther. described it like this. He said it's a gamer's party game, right? Like normal people would not want to do these little things because you feel like a freaking idiot doing this because these aren't easy puzzles. Okay, they require. They're first off, you've got the time thing. They almost all require some degree of manual dexterity, some degree of puzzle solving. And it's it's a mess, but they're kind of cha- the chaosy kind of thing is fun. However, because you can never really know who's going to be successful, who's going to fail, there's so much randomness that you kind of just gonna you're gonna win or you're gonna lose, and there's not a whole lot in terms of strategy. I mean, you can kind of say, "Hey, let's steer the ship this away," but. You know, hey, if there's three bad guys out there and the weapons guy doesn't manage to load any torpedoes into the torpedo tube, well, you probably shouldn't have flown next to those three guys, but you don't know because you're flying and loading at the same time. Um, so it's just chaos. It's it's fun. It's goofy. You better play with people you've played games with before. Uh, you know, and this is our regular game group, and, you know, I knew everybody I was playing with uh, for the most part, and so that that wasn't a big deal. Um, Play with people you know to avoid, you know, death threats and angry shouting. Well, like, okay, I, I, I'm i going to be honest, okay? So we get to uh, the first round of the game. I'm on weapons. The way weapons works is you flip over a little tile, and on that tile it's got kind of a funky... It's a grid with a funky little uh, shape on there. You have to grab a bunch of little tiles and match the shape. And if you successfully do that in a later part of the turn... You then take a little wooden disc and you flip it, uh, shuffle puck style. And it has to, depending on how far it goes, it can get you one, two, three, four, or five damage. And if you flip it off this little track that's maybe four inches wide by two feet long, give or take, uh, you don't hit anything. You've missed. All right, so this is the first. First time I'm doing this, put the thing down, I gave my finger down there, and I duffed it! I duffed it! I, I hit it like <laughs> like an inch or two, maybe. It did not get far enough to do hardly any damage. And, uh, you know, everybody kind of was like, uh, it was humiliating, it was lame, but, it, you know, these are friends, so it's okay. Um, but, yeah, if you're, if you're playing, especially with, like, really highly competitive people, not a good game to play. It's just a goof, that's all it is. It's a goof when you've decided you don't want to play a hardcore Euro today. Uh, it, that's a it's a good game for that. I've heard that if you want to be that that style game, but a little bit more. I have I have one that's a little more in depth and one that's a little more a simpler game. More complicated is a game called Space Alert. Space Alert basically is you're on a space you're on a spaceship, but everything has to happen at the same time. And your ship is totally broken. So you have to work at repairing the ship while aliens are coming in and time, I don't know, like time warps are happening so that other people are like in different sets of time than the rest of you. Oh my. Um, I think the coolest thing about this game, I haven't played it, so I, I, I want to play it. If I can get my hands on a copy of it, it will be the very next thing that I do. Um, because there are things like the ship has a screensaver, and if you don't toggle the screensaver, the ship shuts down. <laughs> like this game sounds amazing, but everything's happening at the same time. It's mass chaos. Uh, for the later game, it, it's a little bit more complex than like a family game, but it's still very accessible to a lot of people. Is uh, Escape. Curse of the Temple? Yes. Where basically everyone's rolling dice to run through this temple. You have three ten-minute intervals. And if you if you don't run to the, the ending of the, the temple by the time the timer runs out, you all die. Well, and that's one of the ones that has, like, a soundtrack, right? <laughs> yes, it comes with a CD. I need to play ha- a game with a soundtrack. I have not done that. That seems awesome to me. 
I haven't done it in a long time. The last one I did it was back when when that was new technology. Um, I've often talked about the fact that I used to play a game called Nightmare, which had a time mm-hmm. where an angry Crypt Keeper dude would come and right. yell at you every, like, 15 minutes. Yeah, the last time I played a game with timers, it involved a VHS tape. Yeah, my copy of Nightmare did too. Yeah, so that that was a long time ago. Uh, uh, folks, for those of you who are younger than 20-ish... Uh, VHS tapes were like CDs, but not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> way DVDs, to make us feel guess, old. But not. Uh, and uh, they had this thing called tracking, and there was static <laughs> on the screen. I, I know it's crazy, right? Crazy. Those are the, the days, those of us who've lived a little bit longer oh, than you, the, the, the pains that we had to experience as we walked uphill both ways in the snow. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, though. You know what? Rolling dice against a time limit? That's stressful, man. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think of myself as a relatively intelligent person. But when you can roll dice against a time limit, that, uh, that'll that mess you up, man. Uh, and I will admit, I dropped at least one piece on the floor in the middle of the chaos. Oh, <laughs> so, How often uh, did you, like, scream when that piece hit the floor? Uh, you know, I, I only actually screamed out... One time, <laughs> uh, but uh, so yeah, it's an interesting game. I don't need to play it again, but if a bunch of friends were together and we were playing it, I'd sit down and take one of the jobs. But it's not something I'm going to look to play again. There is another version of the game uh, that's come out more recently called Space Cadet Dice Duels, and this is a little bit different because you play. It's not a cooperative game though. You, it's a cooperative competitive game. There are two teams. I think of four, and you're fighting each other, and it's more like escape, where you're rolling a lot of dice uh, to make that happen. And I'm interested in trying out that one. Uh, when I, I'll probably do that uh, at least when I uh, when I go to Kublacon this year uh, in a couple of months. So uh, that was one of the games. The second game that I have been wanting to play in it for a very long time, and have now gotten the opportunity to, because I bought it because Marty said so. Uh, was the Pathfinder the Adventure card game. Okay, now you mentioned that you had played this game. I got a text message about it uh, earlier in the week. I'm I'm really curious because you and I both said that it seems kind of silly to play the Pathfinder game when we could just play Pathfinder. Okay, I have much things to say. <laughs> Many much things to yeah. say. So first off, remember... I called this my game of the year last year, even though I hadn't played it. Right. And for those of you who think that's strange, go back and listen to the uh, game, the things of the year episode. We explain. Uh, uh, but just in case you don't know, what the Pathfinder at uh, first? What's Pathfinder? Okay. Uh, Pathfinder is a role-playing game system created. I don't know who created it, but run Paizo, like a company called Paizo. Did they create it? Okay. Um, and it's essentially D&D 3.5, um, but it's it's become a full-fledged... They've got campaign worlds, they've got every kind of uh, race and class combination you could possibly want. They've got monster manuals out the wazoo, uh, and it is, in fact, the, the role-playing game system that we are using here on uh, in Inroads to... Uh, do our play-by-post, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Oh, we certainly um, will. And the interesting thing about uh, Pathfinder is that it is also part of the open gaming license, which means you can make stuff for this game. It's it's a very open kind of experience. So that's what Pathfinder is. Uh, it takes place uh, on the kind of this core the core world of Pathfinder, and uh, what the card game is it's a either uh, I'm playing it solo okay I bought this game specifically to play it solo but it's a cooperative game where you feel the group of adventurers uh, who are represented by a card a single card represents your character and your deck represents your powers equipment etc and also your life uh, it's a deck of 15 cards. It can increase, I think, if, as you level up. I don't, Maybe not. I could be wrong about that. Um, but 
what's unique about this is you are playing through a campaign. And so there are set adventures that you take on, uh, again, either as an individual or as a team, and your character levels or improves as you move through this adventure. And it improves in two ways. One, it improves as you get new cards in the game. You're collecting loot. You're you're defeating things and being able to collect those cards and put them into your deck. Uh, at the end of the game, if you've won, if you've completed that adventure, you can recreate your deck using those new cards. So in a way, it's a deck building game that happens really slowly. <laughs> okay. Uh, the other way is after you defeat certain adventures on this adventure path, which is what they call campaigns, uh, you get feats, which enable you to, say, hold another card in your hand, uh, add plus one to certain dice rolls, etc., etc., etc. So, I mean, I think one good way to think about this as it it is a DMless role-playing game without any role-playing. Yeah, I mean, it's it basically, it's all the, the gear and the monster killing and the, the cool, you know, ability-having kind of aspects of the game. You're, you're basically munchkins. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, y- you know, the thing is, there's no role-playing at all. Like, none. Right, so you're all- shameless munchkins. Yeah, you know, you could... This could have been... Anything. And it would work just fine. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's more fun when you're fighting a... Goblin versus, you know, a King of Hearts. But, I mean, it's essentially the same thing. Now, so let's just talk about the game. Okay? So, put aside the fact that there's no role-playing here. It's just a fantasy dungeon crawl game. Okay. Okay. Uh, set in a campaign where you level up your character. Uh, the game itself, so far, mind you, I've only played four scenarios. A scenario is essentially an encounter. Uh, adventures are made up of scenarios. Adventure paths are made up of adventures. So I have played four adventures. Uh, no. I... I've played four game sessions. How about that? <laughs> That'll work. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I am playing as a single player. And th- the book actually recommends a couple of characters to play as single player. And I picked uh, I picked the rogue. And so far, the game has been way too easy. Uh, we've talked a lot about cooperative play-against-the-board kind of games. And a solo game is like a cooperative game. It's just without any friends. Uh, <laughs> and the the whole point of a, a co-op, a, or a play-against-the-board kind of game is... It's hard. they got to be hard, right? They have to give you at least as much feeling of threat that another human would give you playing the game. You know, we we bring up the archetypal cooperative game all the time, Pandemic. You know, hey, if you've got better than a 25% win ratio on Pandemic, you're awesome. Okay? Yeah. You lose. I will... It's just the nature of the game. Yeah, I will say I'm probably, if I if I were to add up all my games of Pandemic played, I think, I think I'm at, uh, for every one game of Pandemic I've won, I would probably say there's at least five games that I've lost. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. Me too. And... So this is different, though, because of the campaign idea. Because, according to the rulebook, it's permadeath. If your character dies, your character is gone. Start a new one, sorry. And so you have this this kind of weird dynamic happening, where you can't have a campaign with a 5 to 1 loss to win ratio and permadeath it'd be impossible that's true and you know you'd be you'd be playing every single adventure with level 1 tunes and you're dead you just no way 
And so what ends up happening is the difficulty level of this is reduced. And, and I would say, based on my experience and my conversations with other friends who are playing this game, that, that kind of 5 to 1 ratio is inverted. You know, you you don't lose very often. You've really got to have a bad uh, series of events. Just uh, the way this works, by the way, is uh, each scenario uh, has locations. And the number of locations is actually based on the number of characters. And each of those locations has a specific deck makeup. So you can imagine one location might have four monsters two barriers, three spells, one armor, no weapons, and uh, six items. Okay? okay? So you make up a little... You, you pull all those things out of the box. Which, by the way, the box is my biggest complaint against this game. <laughs> Why would that be? The inside of the box is awesome. It's amazingly organized. It's even got lovely little setup spaces for the expansions. It's great. It's a thing of beauty. Now, these are all things that we usually applaud games for. What's what's the issue? The lid is so ridiculously tight that, I, I mean, you're, I'm literally bending the box to get the stupid lid off every time I play. Yikes. I don't know if mine was just a bad run. You know, mine got bent a little too different, whatever, I don't know, but it's not good. Anyway, uh, so each of these locations has its own deck. You pull them out of the box, you shuffle it up. Each location will also have either the villain or the villain's henchman. All right, and you shuffle all that up, and now you can take your tune, you can move them to a location, and you can explore that location. As turns expire, you can... You flip over the top card of the location deck, and you deal with it. If it's a good thing, you try to get it. If it's a bad thing, you try to kill it. Um, you can also use abilities and cards and things like that to explore. You have your deck, which you use to interact with all of these things, and uh, your cards are going to either be recharged, which means added to the bottom of your deck, discarded, which means set aside, buried, which means set aside, and unable to return to your deck this game no matter what happens, or banished, which means return to the game box, bye-bye, it's gone. Okay? And that those 15 cards in your deck also indicate your life. So if you ever get to a place where you can't draw a card, you're dead. Uh, there's 30 turns in a t- game. If you run out of turns, you lose. You have to do it again. Uh, so as you go through... You find these villains, you find these henchmen, you close down the locations by doing certain things, depending on what the location is, Uh, and eventually, once you had all the locations closed, you can trap the villain, fight him, beat him, and you win. Um, So, all of this to say why the game is too easy, uh, I'm playing as a rogue. The rogue's ability is to evade encounters. If a bad encounter happens, you just evade. Shuffle you just it back run in away. The, you shuffle it back in the deck, and you wait until you've got all of your kick-ass gear in your hand, and then you go back there and you kick its butt. Um, it, it doesn't cost you anything to do this? To evade, it takes one turn. Oh, that that uh, that's silly. So, uh, yeah, at least in that situation, uh, the rogue is super powerful. Uh, you can play, you can find where the villain is, you can go to the other places once you know where the villain is, because the villain doesn't move unless you make the villain move. Um, you go, you close off those other places, uh, you know, and then you you keep on going. Uh, it is kind of cool to level a character, because it's cool to level a character in any game you play. It's cool to get new stuff, because it's cool in any game you play. Um, all that to be said, as a solitaire game at least, a game that you're playing sitting, it's literally sitting on my uh, living room table, uh, my sofa table I guess is what it is, uh, you know, with the Olympics playing in the background and I'm sitting here flipping over Pathfinder cards and fighting (laughs) 
cool monsters like Attic Whisperer, which that's awesome. Okay, <laughs> and it's the the He's image. Got the it's creepy like, attic ghost. <laughs> oh, dude, the image. It's like the like the monster is made of like the stuff in Grandma's attic. Nice. Like you know how it is. Like when you see the shadow and it looks creepy. Well, that's what the actual monster is. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, and so there is a lot of style to it, and it's fun, and it's you don't have to think very hard when you play. Uh, which the game I was playing solo prior to all of this was the Lord of the Rings Living Card Game. You can't play that game without thinking. That game's hard, <laughs> and uh, it's complex as well as hard. And so, for me, this is more fun just as a solo kickback. Uh, you know, just do whenever you got a half hour to burn kind of a game. A little disappointing. So, so you you don't have any desire to to complete the campaign, or is? Oh no, I'm definitely going to complete the campaign. Okay. Um. Well, I will complete. Uh, the first adventure in the campaign. Uh, the box set comes. You get a mini campaign, a mini adventure that's essentially the learn how to play the game adventure. Right. And then you get the first adventure in the first adventure path. Each month they're releasing a new adventure in the adventure path. And I think the first adventure path has eight adventures in it. Um, So will I spend 15 bucks and buy the next adventure? I don't know yet. Probably because I want to get more playtime out of this game that I've spent you know, a few bucks on. It wasn't that expensive. So, uh, I, I probably will, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Oh, before we switch into the next game, just one last question. Do you think it would be better served if you had more people? I don't know. Um, the difficulty would increase. Uh, so what happens if you have more people is the turn ta- timer, you still only get 30 turns to share amongst all of the people. So I think that would become more stressful. Um, The way that it ramps up in difficulty is it increases the number of locations based on how many people are playing. And remember, you have to close all locations before you can kill the villain. Um, I still don't think the actual encounters... The, the bad guys would be very hard. But I think that maybe that, that turn timer might cause you to lose more often. I don't think you would die more often. But I think you might lose more often. Yeah, it was interesting to see that they didn't reduce the number of turns or increase the number of turns either way based on the number of players. Um, I think that might have made the game a little bit more interesting, um, but I don't know. Well, there we go. That's something for you to experiment with. So what have you been doing, man? Uh, I've been, in the times that I've actually been able to play things, I have pretty much gone two ways. One, of course, it's Netrunner. Whoa! I know. I'm shocking everyone. Okay, you've got to talk about why this game. Because I, I know people who don't play Netrunner, and I know yep. people who play Netrunner. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're the people who have played it and love it and, you know, want to play it constantly, and then they're just the people who haven't played it yet. Right. So uh, what, what is it about this game that's so compelling to people? Okay, I will give the absolute cut-and-dry send-up, just because I've talked about this so much. This is basically an asymmetric card game where one person is playing as a bunch of hackers, and the other player is per- playing as the corporations of which the hackers are trying to hack. Um, the corporations are trying to put forth agendas and do some... Interesting, if not altogether shady things. Um, and the 
runners are trying to basically hack into their systems and steal those agendas before they are put into reality. Fight the man! Yes. This is... Y- yes. <laughs> um, so, the thing that, that really gets me about Netrunner is that, that the asymmetric nature of this game. Mm-hmm. This is not like, oh, I've seen this before, so I have this combo and he must have that combo too, because... On the other side of the table, it's a completely different game than what you're playing right now. Mm. It's not like Magic, where you have a general idea what the other person's playing. So, is it is it that there is just a lot more variety in what could happen? There because is. I think, I think people would argue, well, you can build all kinds of different. You could have a, uh, you know, a Duros deck or a. A straight black deck, or you could have a reanimator deck, or you could have all these kind of crazy decks in Magic. But is it just the the nature of the asymmetry that makes it so much less likely to know what's going to be happening on the other side? I think that, for me, that's a huge part of it. It's not the only part of it, but I think that's just a huge part of it, because... uh, the runners have three factions, the corporations have four factions, and even if you pick, you know, the the one faction on the corporation side, let's say, like, I'm currently playing an NBN deck, which is the, uh, basically the, the news network of the future. Okay. Uh, th- their big, their big dynamic is, they're not gonna attack you, but they're gonna know everything about you. They're going to know where you sleep. They're going to know where you eat. They're going to know where your family is. (laughs) And then they're going to send somebody else to go get you. (laughs) Depending on what cards I splash in from other factions will change the way NBN's going to run. I mean, there's there's pretty much one universal card that is always in there. It's called Scorched Earth. It, It basically destroys people. But other than that one card... I've looked online at what people have created for NBN decks, and the stuff that gets put in there, I've never played. I've never played some of the stuff that other people are putting in there. Um, and and so, I guess maybe in one in a way, then you could say that not only is the game balanced, but the card value is balanced. Oh, the card value is insanely balanced. The thing that I love about this, uh, the reason, like I swore off Magic: The Gathering. It's a wonderful game. Don't get me wrong. I love, love what the game does. But the problem is is that back when I was a kid, I didn't have bills to pay, and so I could drop $200 on right. cards and Magic not blink. is a min-maxer's dream. Yes. Right? You play the right cards in your deck. Right. And so that seems to be less of a factor in Netrunner. It really is. I I was just talking to uh, the guy I'm playing with now. Um, he's a member of our game group. He's a buddy of mine from church. Um, I kind of it was kind of easy for me to get him into Netrunner because he already spends a lot of time playing with computers, like for his day job. <laughs> so it was really easy for Man, me. Man, I wish to... hacking was as fun as it was in that movie. Yeah. Oh, that... <laughs> hack the planet. Um, but uh, no. It was so it was really easy, but I told him I said I've bought some extra cards. I really love this game, and I don't mind tossing fifteen dollars to the local game store to get a whole bunch more cards. I don't mind that. Um, at the same time, however, I I told him my brother only has the starter set. It's I got it for him for Christmas because I was that desperate to get more people to play Netrunner with me. Um, he only has a starter set and he beats me. He has created an Anarch deck, which is one of the runner factions. He has created an Anarch deck that hurts me. Hurts me. (laughs) You don't need to buy extra cards. The extra cards are entirely what's your style of play. And, you know, variety. It's variety. It is utterly unnecessary. It is entirely... Uh, optional. And and I love that aspect of it, too. I love the fact that some guy who only has a starter set has just as much opportunity to win as somebody who's bought every expansion that they've come out with for the game. I'll I tell love you what, for that. somebody who has experience in Magic, that seems almost incomprehensible. 
right? Because I know for a fact, I the reason I spent so much money as a kid on Magic was I'm like, I have my deck. I love this deck. I have no problem with this deck. I will never not play this deck. Months down the road, they come up with a new set, and some guy blew me out of the water. Right. Because well, I needed to get new cards. And, you know, if... Uh, and, folks, if you've never played Magic, and you want to go out and play it, they have these decks. They're, I think they call them dual decks or something yes. like that. Yes, and I would recommend or, that. Dude, do that. It's super fun. Super fun. If you take that same deck to your friendly local game store and play in your Friday night tournament, you will get owned! (laughs) (laughs) Magic the Gathering, I've told people over and over again, to get into that game is wonderful, so long as you have a handful of people that are like make some kind of weird blood pack that says we're never buying more cards than we have right now. (laughs) Because the second one of them goes out, it it's the prisoner's dilemma. The second one of them goes out and buys more cards, you're done. You're you're done. But uh, but Netrunner takes that away because uh, I actually uh, was talking to him the other day and I said you can research what cards you want. If you're there are are resources online that say this is what this set has because you know living card games you don't you know exactly right. what you're buying right. So if you're like, I really want this to ha-, like, I was I was actually on the the database earlier today, and uh, I'm like, I want cards that have trait that do traces, which is basically you know to to not go into the too much on the mechanics of the game, basically it it seeks out the person and does an action based on you know whether or not it has enough power to find him. So. My NBN deck loves traces, so I'm like, find me cards that that deal with traces, and it brought back everything from every faction that involves traces. So you can literally make intelligent buying decisions. I can then, and then on that database, it says, do you have this card, and and, and you can set it, these are the, the sets I have, and it'll only show you the ones you have, or if you search everything, it'll say, if you want this card, this is the set you need. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So it's a lot easier to get the starter set, under play a handful of games, play with the basic cards from each faction, understand what they do. Then you can start understanding what your style is. The reason I have my NBN deck is because of the fact that I played a bunch of corporate uh, corporation games, and I really, really like what NBN does. I like right. the NBN Scorched Earth feel. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm always going to like that. I'm also getting, uh, a, what's the, co- the one corporation called Haas Bioroid. They make, they make robots, basically. They make, they make cyborgs and I'm really intrigued by that and their defenses are insane. So I might try that. And one of the coolest things I like about this game, it's kind of, it does kind of happen with magic too, but uh, I think it's just more accessible with with this sort of style of game. I can literally scrap every deck that I've ever made, put all my cards together, walk into a room with other Netrunner players, and say, all right, we're making decks right now. Here are the cards. We're making decks right now and playing. Because you can do that. I've I've made I've made decks in the span of a half hour. Just looking at, at the cards in front of me. Right. And they're at least, they're functional. Right. So it really does seem like there is a lot more balance between card A and card B. Right. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting dynamic that uh, a lot of card games don't have. And and I, I will also say that one of the coolest things that I've discovered um, is that... You know, like any card game, like any game, there's always those guys who have have spent enormous amounts of time on that game and have kind of broken the system down. Right. They do this, do this, do this, and you'll win. Right. I've often found out that when you have when you're going up against that guy, all it takes is putting in one card that he's he's not expecting. Um there, if you want to talk about podcasters who love Netrunner, there's a guy uh, who's on Shut Up and Sit Down, 
which is another amazing you know uh, review i i post up their video reviews all the time up in the tavern um quentin smith he's a he's a big dude when it comes to uh board games and he is more of a netrunner freak than i am and he was talking about the fact that uh there are cards that i forget which card he he said he was particularly using but one he one he mentions is a game, is a card called foxfire it basically it's a super powerful trace that kills a resource no one plays this. No one plays this card because it's super powerful, but only once in very in a very limited capacity. Mm-hmm. But it's the kind of card that if you sneak it into your deck, it might be the thing that wins you the game. Because no one's expecting it. Because you always have to have preparations for everything. You always have to have some kind of defense. Oh, I because like the corporations can do different types of damage. So you, do you have defense for all the different types of damage? Do you really defend against one type of damage? Do you not go on any defense, hoping that you can just run them down real quick? You know, there's so many different options and so many varied ways to handle this that you're never going to be prepared for everything. It's impossible. I have one runner deck. That that's the the design principle of the deck. Be prepared for everything. And she still got destroyed one day because the other guy just got his agendas out lightning quick and I couldn't stop him. Well, it sounds like an interesting game. It's a game I have purposely avoided because I'm already addicted to enough things. (laughs) I I will say that, that... Everybody who I've got to play Netrunner is now a Netrunner freak. Yeah. So. That's a dangerous thing. Dangerous thing. (laughs) So I'll tell you, you know, another thing that I've been doing a lot lately, and I thought it would be fun to bring up on the show, and it's kind of in our wheelhouse. I have been rereading the Dragonlance Chronicles. Oh, the original three books? The original three. Nice. I'm actually on the first one still, but... For those who don't know, the Dragonlance Chronicles are by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Uh, they are a uh, basically D and D novels set on in the D and D campaign world of Dragonlance. Uh, the, the world's actually called the Crin, world of Crin. Um, and for a whole lot of us, myself included, they were the gateway drug into everything we talk about on this show. If I were to go into my bedroom right now on a bookshelf next to my bed is the Chronicles and, and the twins books. I love, I love Raceland and Caramon. Yeah. Um, so I've been rereading those and that, that's just got me into this fantasy vibe. And so I'm super excited about the shadows of Absalom campaign, uh, that we have got going here on, in, on inroads and with, Game Store Profits. Um, For those of you who haven't heard, you can head over to inroadministries.com. You'll have to scroll down a little bit because it's uh, it's been a little while, so you have to dig through some of the... the Or go to our... Or go to the events under social. Oh, awesome! Even better, I didn't know that. That's cool. Um, And you'll be able to see what it's about. Now, we are playing this game as a play-by-post, which... uh, The real advantage to that is you really get to role-play. It's more of a shared storytelling experience than than normal. That's what the focus is. Uh, and I know, Mike, you have put together a character for it. Drogon Anvil Song. Awesome. Tell wayward, us about Wayward Son of Highhelm. Because you know it's a Dwarven Bard. Yeah, it was really funny because I've never played Pathfinder before. I know about it, and I know the general understanding of Pathfinder, but I've never played it. Right. So now that we're getting now that we're getting into this, I have to I have to look into the, cru- the the crunch of everything. And so I'm like, all right, I know I want to be a bard, and I know I want to be a dwarf. These are just known. Go. These are just known things. Um. So I I let me find a a how to build a bard guide. Because I'm sure there is one, and and I'll I'll work with that. So I I go online and I look up how you know how to uh, construct a bard in Pathfinder, 
and I'm looking through it, and there's some interesting information. It gives you several different general ideas of how to put your guy together, and uh, it says, you know, suggested races, and then it says dwarf. Never, ever, 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 ever should you be a dwarf bard. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um... So I'm super excited about this. <laughs> um, the the short short version of of Drogon's story is that he is the son of an archivist. Uh, there is an archive in High Helm, which is a and pretty much considered the capital of the Dwarven kingdoms. If if one could be named, it would be High Helm, and uh, he is the son of an archivist. He, I, I don't want to explain why this happened because that's actually part of his story but uh drogan is not exactly well received in high helm these days because of something that he did and so he is now on the road um he is he's it's particularly fun because i know like way back in the first episode we talked about what it means to you know uh follow deities in a fantasy game so if Again, go back to episode one if you want to hear our talk on that. But uh, Drogon is a follower of what is referred to as the Lucky Drunk. Nice. Uh, He is a man who ascended to godhood by following this trial. And uh, he pretty much is the guy who says uh, everything should be about freedom. No man should, should choose the path for another person. Everyone has the ability to follow their own heart. So Drogon has taken to the road to try and fix his issues. Uh, He is currently looking... I'll give you this bit. Uh, Drogon won't ever explain to anyone why he's looking for him, but he is currently looking for an elven antiquities dealer in in an attempt to regain his honor and the respect of his father. Okay. So, yes. So he, he views that... Bards are nothing but archivists who decide to tell their stories out as opposed to write them and keep them in, in safes. So he, he is out to spread the the history of the Dwarven peoples. So folks, if you want to hang out with Drogon, you can head over to uh, inroadsministries.com, go to the events, roll yourself up a tune, get involved. The campaign, I think, is going to be starting uh, at the beginning of March. Um, so it's coming quick. This particular podcast may, depending on, on if we're a little short on people or not, there's a bunch of people who've threatened to create characters. If they haven't, we might extend it a little bit, but it's, if you're listening to this right now and you haven't done it, email us, tell us you want to do this again, or possibly be watching out for an extension. Maybe, maybe I'll future mic it if we have room. Fair enough when this episode airs to as to whether or not we can add more people. Fair enough. Greetings programs. It is future Mike here to give a little bit of a, an addendum to this episode as I am currently editing it. Uh, I literally just put in another post into the play by post for Drogon Anvil song. Um, I believe the party is coming together. I believe that we have, I want to say five people in it. It's hard to tell right now because everything's still kind of early, but we are solidifying. I would say that there's potential that we might be able to squeeze more people in there, but that would be entirely up to Jeff. So I can't really say anything to it at this point. Uh, Definitely email Jeff at jeff at inroadsministries.com if you're interested. Uh, if, If nothing else, he'll probably take your name down, and if we do this again after this particular campaign, uh, he'll be sure to contact you then. But it's not completely without hope, so give him an email, and he'll be sure to settle that up with you. Until then, I'm going to return you back to your regularly scheduled banter. Alright, well, I have, uh, I think I'm going to get involved in this campaign. Though I had a bit of a uh, internet fail. Okay. Recently. Uh, so I'm rolling a tune. Uh, his name's Borag Pinkblood. He's a half orc, and uh, I'm using an online tool uh, that I have never used before. I won't say who it was. There's a bunch of them out there. And I rolled up this tune, and you know, rolling a tune it takes a little time, especially on Pathfinder. 
you gotta make some choices. You gotta think about it. You gotta create a background. And uh, Jeff or DM or GM, I guess, uh, in Pathfinder World, uh, for this campaign, has he's asked for some pretty extensive background thinking. And uh, so these things take time. And I put time in. And I hit the save button. And it broke. <laughs> oh. And I lost everything. And I was sad and depressed and angry. And so I closed the computer. And I have not yet come back to recreate uh, Borag Pinkblood uh, the second. But I think that I will and get him involved uh, in this campaign. He is a half-orc. Uh, always a tough position to be in. Uh, let's be honest here. Most half-orcs, they are, um... Well, they're slave children. They are the children of, uh, orc slave, slave, uh... They're, they're basically human the world... women who have been, uh, uh, enslaved by orcs. And there's, it's not a thing that happens too terribly often. It, it's uh, it's rarely a thing that is out is of good. love and respect. Yes. <laughs> However, in Borag's situation, we have something a little bit different. Borag was fathered by a human male. The very opposite of what typically would happen with a, a half-orc situation. Uh, and he, though he doesn't know who his father was, he knows that he has been ridiculed by his orc people. For a very long time. Uh, He is weak compared to most orcs. And so he's been picked on. He's been abused. He's still stronger than most humans, mind you. But for an orc, he's uh, he's a pretty runty little guy. Uh, And it wasn't until his intelligence began to show itself that the, uh, the orc chieftain of his community realized that this guy could be very valuable to the community... Uh, and uh, gave him at least a semblance of protection. But as the years came, he became more and more uh, just frustrated and angry and hurt by his people, and eventually decided that he was going to try to find his humanity. And uh, went off to try to do that, and uh, the way he ended up finding, uh, uh, well, the quest that he is on, uh, is through the role of an alchemist. Now, in uh, Pathfinder, typically what alchemists do is they can create these concoctions that take their uh, their intelligence or their charisma or their wisdom down and improve their physical stats. They can get stronger. They can get faster. They're hulking, essentially. Right? Right. However, Borag came in contact with a kind of a a crazy alchemist, who does the opposite. He weakens the body to improve the mind. And so in Borag's heart, he feels like if he can be more intelligent and weaker physically, he becomes more human. And so his goal is to, through the magics of alchemy, degrade and diminish and eventually eliminate the orcish elements of his nature to become more fully human. And uh, he is on a quest to do that, and um, we'll just have to re-roll him to see how he's gonna. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. Can I? Can I just say that I'm super excited about this? Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm a little bit like overwhelmed. I think just because I've never role played this way, but I think it's gonna be an awful lot of fun. Uh, man, I'll tell you what, Jeff has done some great work. Yeah, this he together. has. I mean, just read the little like synopsis of what's going on, and this is all homebrew. This is all him. Um, it's looking really cool. Uh, the vibe is kind of like a mystery on the Orient Express in the fantasy world kind of a thing. Yeah, his it's, his it's plan cool, is man. to uh, his plan is to do like little like lead up RP with all of us. Um, in fact, he was talking to me about what he plans to do with with Drogon, and it's gonna be it should be fun. But once uh, once we we each have our own little RP thing, we're all going to meet up on a boat very similar to Murder on the Orient Express because we're it all starts off with a bunch of random strangers meeting up on a mode I th- of I transportation. Think awesome. I think it's awesome. 
uh, and I'm super excited to uh, to get involved with it. Um, so, folks, hey, by the way, if you're listening and you have a really good tool that you know to use to make Pathfinder characters, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> One that won't break and cause yes. him all sorts of... Yeah, and if it was to break, at least it could have broken at the beginning. At the end, that hurt, man. That hurt. So, I have been, uh, again, you know, rolling this tune, rereading the Dragonlance Chronicles, and, uh, you know, it is just hit me so hard this week how much fantasy has impacted my spiritual life. Now, even as I say that, the, like, warning bells in my brain, the pastoral warning bells that say, like, you can't say that, are going <laughs> off, right? They won't let you do that. Um, but I gotta tell you, you know, I, I mean, honestly, I, I would tell you that one of the most influential spiritual writers in my life is J.R.R. Tolkien. And, you know, I'm not the kind of person who's gonna say, oh, yeah, you know, the Lord of the Rings, it's all just spiritual allegory. No, because I would hurt you. Yeah, because it's... We wouldn't even have to wait for the audience to do that. I would hurt you. (laughs) But, you know, fantasy, and and really all storytelling, but I think fantasy in a very special kind of a way, just it has that ability to engage our mind on a different level and have us look at the questions of good and evil and our roles in the world... You know, how many times have you sat down with a buddy and had the conversation and been like, you know what, man, right now in my life, I'm like living this character class, you know, or or this is like the, this is the stage on the adventure's journey that I'm on right now. And so much of life can be reflected back to you in fantasy and in that hero's journey story. And, uh, you know, one thing that, that I want to encourage a lot of people to do is to recognize that the scriptures are like 93% story. Yep. And story is really good. God has been using story for a really long time to change lives. And, uh, you know, I, I really believe that God created things like storytelling and like music and and ver- other various forms of arts and and I, you know I think that you know he made flowers look pretty for a reason you know all of these things they take us out of our mundane life and just give us that little tiny sign that hey there's a god out there you know the world could have been just like gray all the time there ain't no good reason for colors but god decided hey we're gonna have colors. He could have given every last one of us a monotone voice. You know what I I just realized that I'm describing is aliens. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the way we always picture aliens. They live in this kind of blah world and they kinda of all speak the same voice and they, they all kinda of look the same and all that. And we God could have made the world that way. But he didn't. He made the world full of cool stuff. And then you know what he did? He stuck it in our brain to make up new worlds that are full of cool stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, I I would completely agree. And especially with the whole uh, aspect of fantasy being such a, a big part of that. Like, I I don't know what my existence would be like without that. And and I think there there's a there's a value there. Like there are some people who would say that that I'm I'm putting too much emphasis on something that isn't godly. I've heard that before, and I, I I don't buy that for a second, because if you really look at the histories of these things, that much like uh, how a lot of the great art pieces and a lot of the great music pieces were all influenced by the church, if not Directly. you know paid for, paid for by the right. church. A lot of the great pieces of fantasy writing. I wonder, have we ever talked about this on the show? I think we've alluded to it. Uh, well, let's do like a real quick history lesson here. Um, so, fantasy as a genre 
I mean, there's different arguments about how long it's been around, okay? And they're, they're the kind of defining factor that makes fantasy uh, a genre, at least historically speaking, when, you know, people with PhDs after their name looks at these kind of <laughs> things, is that it was intentionally make-believe. Yes. Right? There were stories before. So you can go back to, uh, uh, what's his name, Snorri? Who uh, who did the uh, the Eddas and yeah. um, the people who are, don't know what I'm talking about are like he's making crazy crap up. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> okay, there was really a dude in Norway. His name was Snorri, and he put together uh, the Lesser Edda, which is uh, basically the the uh, Norse book of giants and trolls and heroes and kings and stuff. This really did happen, um, but. That was more like a religious book. It was more like a folktale kind of a thing. Um, theoretically, they they thought those things happened. It's like they were telling history. Um, fantasy as a we made this thing up has only been around for, what, what maybe like 150 years, give or take? And, uh, it, sure, sounds right. <laughs> you know, um, it, it kind of evolved out of Gothic literature. And, uh, you know, there's some early examples. Uh, the worm Oribus, or, or I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, was no one, one of them uh, a guy named Lord Dunsany who um, wrote uh, some very early uh, fantasy uh, but fantasy really kicked into gear with a dude named George MacDonald okay? the father of modern fantasy uh, and George MacDonald wrote uh, several books uh, the one that you should probably read uh, well I would say is called The Princess and the Goblin. It's uh, probably the most well-known. Yeah. Uh, a great book. There are some others that would you might want to call them more adult. Princess and the Goblin's a little bit more like Hobbit level of uh, writing. Um, but he essentially created the genre. I mean, if there is a father or a grandfather or whatever of the genre, is George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a full-time preacher. That's what he did. Yep, And he considered these stories that he was telling as completely reflective. He did not pull punches. He said, this is Christian. And at the time, nobody was angry about it because nobody knew what it was. (laughs) 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 It took a long time for the church to decide that they didn't like these things. But McDonald went on and... and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien both would say that MacDonald was a huge influence on their life and writing. And obviously both those men also guys who loved God. They weren't preachers. Um, but Tolkien uh, was a, a solid man of faith. And C.S. Lewis didn't start out a relationship with Tolkien as a, a man of faith, but through talking to him uh, – was introduced to God and wrote some of the defining tomes of Christian nonfiction. I, I try to read mere Christianity almost on a yearly basis because it's just that much of a defining piece of, of uh, instructional literature. And he also wrote Narnia. He also wrote a bunch of basically modern mythology. Right, so people who are influenced by George MacDonald directly, okay, human being to human being, not like, oh, we like his stuff, but no, like they studied with the dude, okay, C.S. Lewis, um, a little guy named Lewis Carroll, who mm-hmm. wrote uh, Through the Looking Glass, um, uh, he didn't, I don't think he actually had a direct relationship with Tolkien, but he did influence Tolkien, he did influence G.K. Chesterton. Uh, a lot of these huge names. And then if you kind of just expand out into the people that he influenced, like in terms of people who read him, uh, you know, I know that Neil Gaiman refers to him as an influence. Yep. Um, he was friends with people like Longfellow and Walt Whitman and all kinds of other names that you only knew when you were in high school lit. Um, he was the real deal and he was a preacher and that was normal back then for them 
fantasy worlds were an incredible way of expressing the gospel. And more than just expressing the gospel, expressing God. Expressing creation. Somewhere along the way, yes, we did kind of decide that the church and these things don't get along too well. But we are doing our best to fix that. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, for me, just sitting down, I'll tell you, I can read the Dragonlance Chronicles and have no idea what the spirituality of uh, their writers might be. But I can look in there and go, there are things here that resonate with my soul. And that's awesome, you know? Um, and, uh, again, uh, we just want you to hang out with us and, uh, play with us, play with others if you can't hang out with us. Uh, try these worlds out. Try these games out. Try these books out. Hey, if you've never read the Dragonlance Chronicles, maybe you didn't have that, that introduction into the world when you were a teenager like we did. Pick them up. I'm sure you can get them for, like, nothing. The first three books of the, of the basically of Dragonlance, they are referred to as the Chronicles. It's, oh wow, it's been a long time since I've actually looked at dragons the titles. It's of dragons Autumn of Autumn Twilight, Twilight dragons of, of winter something, and dragons of spring something. Dragons of spring dawning, and oh, it's gonna bug me now. I'm gonna have to look this up. Do your wrap up, well. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and uh, we just encourage you guys, hey, if you want to connect with us, we've got a really super easy way for you to do that. You go to inroadsministries.com slash contact, or if you're too lazy to type in slash contact, go to inroadsministries.com and click on the contact link, and that'll take you to all of the places we are everywhere, and we are everywhere. If you want to really kind of get involved, have a cool community, uh, you can... Go there, click on the thing we call the Tavern. The Inroads Tavern is a Facebook group page. I don't know which one it is, but it's a thing where you can (laughs) go and talk about nerdy stuff. And there's a lot of people there who talk about nerdy stuff all the time. And they're all believers, and it's great, and it's a lot of fun. Go there. And uh, as always, I will say say this a couple things. I I did write uh, the most recent article I wrote for this site uh, called All Together Now was basically – inspired by the tavern it's it's pretty much the this is why this is why i think the tavern is important um so definitely check that out i will say you know luke you did have a little bit of a miss misspeak there not everybody in the tavern is a believer and that's why i love it even more (laughs) Uh, it's a safe place for believers how about that that? yes that is is a big thing for me Uh, it's a place where there are no jerks there and Wheaton's we, law is following. We have we have one rule. It's Wheaton's law. Um, but okay. I, by the way, I did find out it's Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which we both remembered. It's Dragons of Winter Night and Dragons of Spring Dawning. That's yeah, that makes sense. We probably could have. If we'd have we thought about it, hard could enough, have, we probably could have you know that reasoned together. that out if we had thought about it. But there you go. Great books. You will get to introduce to Tasselhoff Burfoot, one of the most awesome characters in the history of literature. And, uh, uh, you, you'll love it. I and... will say, I will say, one of my one of my happiest moments of uh, Gen Con was when we went out to eat and we were sitting across the the uh, the like it was like almost like a tavern kind of place we were at. And I look over to my left, and there is a man dressed as Tannis half elven and a woman who had a, uh, a pack staff. Awesome. And I'm like, oh my goodness, are you supposed to be Tass? And she's like, yes, I'm so happy you caught that reference. <laughs> and uh, so if you haven't, if you don't know what we're talking about, read the books. You'll love it. We promise. Then go to the taverns and tell us how much you love it. In the meantime, remember that God is the game master. And no matter how the dice fall, the game plays on.